Welcome to the next episode of American Filmmaker. On this episode, we are going to talk to one of my collaborators when it comes to script writing. Mitch helped me edit How to Kill a Bad Man, which is the first screenplay that I've published. I'm about to publish a romantic comedy, currently called Los Espiritus. And so I just wanted to get Mitch on the podcast because I'm researching another script and I had a question. And so I figured this was a really good teaching moment. So I'm writing a script and because of Mitch's anthropology background, in the middle of the script, there is a talismanic weapon some type of spiritual weapon. And so I decided to ask Mitch just about what is a talismanic weapon? Is there any history of it? And then we got started talking about magic. So I would like to welcome Mitch Shinasa to the American Filmmaker Podcast. Well, hi, Jonathan. Thanks for the tea. You're very welcome. Is there more tea? Let's bring the tea closer to us. This tea has to be here. It's important to the process. And if you hear something that sounds like someone going to the bathroom, it's actually us just making tea. Well, then the other sound is me going to the bathroom. Uh, so Mitch, tell us a little bit about yourself while I make you some tea. Well, of relevance, I, uh, I know Josh. I enjoy tea. Um, and uh, my background's in anthropology and in writing. And that the writing piece came together when Josh asked me to edit... Uh, well, what was not originally called How to Kill a Bad Man, but after some good editing, was retitled. Um, and I just had a lot of fun working on his on his writing and working on his material. I think his ideas were really unique, and um, the concepts that Josh put together and where I saw possibilities for that to kind of reach a crescendo in that screenplay were, were really exciting. So obviously, Josh, when you came and asked me about, uh, you know, magic, that's something I was happy to talk about because that's you know what I focused a lot of my anthropology uh, research on. And the script that Mitch was talking about that we worked on, it's available on Amazon, Booktopia, Barnes & Noble, and if you are in Boulder, Colorado, uh, you can buy it at the local bookstore. And Mitch helped me edit How to Kill a Bad Man, which was originally titled $20 an hour. And uh, It's kind of a story about two marijuana trimmers who uh, find out that the shady character who hired them was uh, a bit more sinister than they had ever imagined and have to uh, negotiate the aftermath of that. I don't know how you knew that, but that was exactly. Yeah, that's what I remember of it at least. I guess I earned more tea for that. Very good. And so now this kind of brings me to the current stuff I'm writing. I got about a 40 or 50 page treatment and it's kind of like Pan's Labyrinth meets X-Men, but at the center of it is a spiritual weapon and magic is involved along with interdimensional possessions. Mm -hmm. And the main character is putting together a team of people in order to kind of take back the Earth for human sake. So the, the team of people is the X-Men. Kind Mark. of, but not really. Like, you know, the main character was raised on monatomic gold. So she has been part of this org human organization that basically tracks the alien, I guess, control of the Earth. But when I say alien, you always think of a little man or a little gray alien or a green alien. But really, in this case, we're talking about interdimensional possessions and kind of this reality that we get exposed to when you do psychedelics or when you explore different ethnogens. And so we get into these... Uh, you know, realities with parallel universes and things live in these parallel universes. That's why I wanted to ask you more questions because I needed help to figure out what a talismanic weapon was. Technically, a talismanic weapon is an oxymoron because a talisman is purely protective. So a talismanic shield or talismanic armor, you'd be dead on with. It's shielding. Right. So okay. that's, you know, that's like saying... Uh, uh, I don't know, a, 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 an armor sword. That doesn't make sense. Well, and maybe even you're even, this is good because you're making me think of may, maybe what if there is an amulet component that is more of a shield thing and then the other component is more of an active weapon, you know? Yeah, usually, you know, when you see, oh, really any magical tradition, uh, you can go, to, and, and, you know, we haven't discussed the realm or the sort of lineage that this takes place, but there's sort of that, that concept that you have 
the shielding and protective aspect, and then another sort of smiting or attacking aspect. So it might be a knife or a stick, you know, so something to attack the spirit with. And then you got other things going on to protect yourself. Which brings me to the other idea was, you know, talking more about kind of this realm of magic and like as it catches on into the mainstream in different movies. Dude, isn't that weird? And isn't it weird how, I mean, I don't know how tapped into millennials you are, but I feel like when we were growing up, like no one really talked about astrology except like a handful of really out there people. But I feel like everyone's starting to kind of get really hip to astrology, which I don't know. I guess if we think back to like, when I think back to when I was a kid in the 80s and I think back to the, my image of maybe the generation before that, there's that whole like what's your sign trope, right? So, so I think to, perhaps to some extent that th this is just that cycle coming back around and that awareness coming back around. But, you know, the hugest difference now, because this isn't the first time there's been a spiritual awakening or a magical awakening or whatever, but the Internet. Holy smokes. The fact that in my pocket I've got this little device and it has access to, you know, six translations of every grimoire that there was. And if I find something cool, I can get into a group of people and discuss it and, you know, share ideas and reflections and thoughts and questions all in a matter of seconds, like while I'm sitting on a bus or, you know, sitting in a porta potty or something like it's, it's, and when you compare that to, you know, even a hundred years ago, but go back because these arts are, are quite old. You know, a thousand years ago, a scholar would travel all their life to find, like, one book. It's amazing that we have this flood of information, and that's kind of the challenge of it now, too, is that, you know, sorting sorting authentic information from, you know, clickbait. So in your research and your anthropological work with magic um, and studies with magic, what kind of things are happening? Because I do think Hollywood is embracing it, and I do think it's embracing it for another reason. I mean, there are probably elements of Hollywood that enjoys feeding off of the young or the unorganized or the chaotic energy around the industry. Um, or maybe there is even some element of human sacrifice to the level Whoa. of, you know what I mean. Um, or, or not even, but I guess I think it's interesting um, that magic is now coming into play, but I also think that we just see the very beginning of it. I guess for me as a creative person, I helped on a documentary that would probably become one of my most widely distributed films. It was bought by Showtime, and I basically went into Haiti after the earthquake, and we ended up filming the guy who would become elected to be president of Haiti. And we didn't know this at the time, and so I did all the research into Haiti, and that brought me to voodoo, uh, Papa Legba, and the different traditions to interface with their spiritual reality. And as a filmmaker and documentarian, at the time making a documentary, because there were no actors, even though actors would end up being in the film. I mean, we got interviews from Ben Stiller, Wyclef Jean, Danny Glover did an interview, but he didn't want to be in the final film. It, it was still a documentary. but. I researched the spiritual tradition because that's what I was most worried about and I wanted to be able to interface with it so that I might be able to get the right shots. And so I did things that, you know, you would do to um, interface with those voodoo traditions. And in a way, I guess it worked, but then what, what I came back with was um, I, I had gone deeper than I thought was possible um, in the sense that Haiti, it's kind of a unified field where 100% of the people believe in voodoo, but then... Close, it's like 90-something percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah and then 98% Catholicism or whatever. Right, and the, and the other percent that say they don't do, but they just don't want to say they do, yeah. Yeah, so I came back with something, needless to say, that was uh, part of uh, that, and then I had to get it removed. And, and now that I know that that interdimensional space exists between our physical space, and kind of the other reality, um, I, I'm i a little more cautious. And so that's not the other reason why, because me and you had to talk about this, and then you know you were able to just you know help comment on that space, but also I think talking about that from for, for people. Yeah, I mean, and you know, I, I think when people first hear about spiritual energies or spiritual possessions, it's kind of a little woo and out there. And I think 
for, especially for creatives, a way that we can can wrap our minds around a lot more. It's like these really deep archetypes in our psyche, these sort of primary, and not everyone has all of these archetypes necessarily as developed as the next person, um, just because of the happenstances of their life or you know things like that. But when we talk about uh, some of these the, these patterns, we talk about some of these patterns of thought and patterns of behavior and patterns of feeling and how they can stick with us. And it's sort of like this, one of these systems that may be sitting in your unconscious has been kind of dormant and it just gets triggered up and who knows, it could be something you smelled or something you saw or something you, you know, the way a light flashed or the way a bird sounded in combination with the way the light's coming in the window there in combination with the smell, in combination with a certain, you know, rhythm that just you know, your your brain's shooting electricity across those synapses and it's always choosing the same route and one day it just takes a detour. You know, there's, there's all those parts of our brain that we don't normally access and they're accessible. And so when that happens, it, it is sort of this strange reality shift. You know, the function of consciousness, the function of our brains is, is basically to to filter out reality, to filter out what is really just chaos and to, and by filtering it, sort of selectively filtering it, it, it creates the illusion of order, which is how we're able to deal with utter chaos. But, you know, when, when we're talking about hallucinogens, entheogens, or when we're talking about spiritual practices, or we're, we're talking about other things, we, we can either alter or remove some of that filter and get to see a little bit more of the raw chaos than we usually let ourselves see, oh, or maybe a different put a different filter on right and it's different stuff gets through just like a, you know a filter or a lens filter different f wavelengths get through and different wavelengths get blocked when we kind of become aware of that stuff again I think we're in an interesting age for it because of just how much it can be how easy it is to communicate though this is it kind of is such an incommunicable concept right well, and I feel like what I see is that there's this artificial intelligence that's being developed in place of an active spiritual reality, because I wonder if people knew that there was an interdimensional reality that people are accessing with their thoughts and emotions, whether or not they want to believe it or not, and their intentions, that maybe they might see like, oh, this artificial intelligence world seemingly looks like a human world with a lot of interdimensional realities like I don't yeah I don't I don't necessarily think that artificial intelligence can't be trained to access interdimensional realities um, I don't they may beat us to it so going back to that why is this world magic or from from your research I sure guess, what is the understanding on yeah or just beginning if like we were in a magic class for example how would you start let's say two people from the Abrahamic religions, uh, Christianity, Catholicism, or like Judaism, because there's probably different interfaces. I'd really rather start with two people who, who are total, and this is my favorite, people who are 100% rational skeptics, who really only believe in science. I like that too. Because that's, that's, that's how I, you know, I was a social, I am a social scientist. I have to be rigorous about these things. I can't just be like, well, this hippie chick told me and she seemed happy. Like, that's not good enough for me. Um, and so I, I kind of really appreciate the rigor. And, and, you know, when we look at, when we just start, we're going to have to jump across some scientific disciplines. And I'm going to do my best to stay out of, like, what we might consider pop science, which is, you know, a little, a little less just established. But when we just talk about what is an atom, an atom is is a, it's got that nucleus and it's got those electrons all running around it really fast, and it's it's a pattern. It's a pattern of energy is what it is. Elements are made up of atoms and minerals are made up of elements and on and on from there. But you you basically just have this aggregation of of sort of recurring or archetypes of patterns of energy. That's what the whole periodic table is. It's all these different archetypes of patterns of energy. And indeed, you can like step, what is chemistry? Then chemistry is sort of like stepping these things up or down, mod modulating these patterns of energy to move them through these archetypal phases. When you look at it that way, it's like, oh yeah, that's, that's why chemistry came from alchemy, or that's how, that's how chemistry came from alchemy. So we have kind of that understanding of just that's what that's what the stuff of the world is, man. You know, the everything around us is just energy in these different phases. 
Um, so that's the chemistry aspect of it. And then when we get to the physics aspect of energy in general, you know, we have that concept of unity, that energy can neither be created nor destroyed. In the law of therm thermodynamics, it just changes forms. And, you know, we, we take that for granted. And the example they always give is if you rub your hand, then the, you know, that kinetic energy turns into heat energy is when you, from the friction, right? If you rub some two things together, rub your hands together and they get hot. But, I mean, that's that's what we can do with our bodies, sure, but obviously chemistry is changing these energies and, and there's all sorts of ways to modulate these energies. And then when we talk about energy, that's kind of this, it can get to, into this like woo, new age, what is the energy term? But let's talk like real energy. There's only energy. We, we conceive of it as different types of energy, right? Light energy, sound energy, even chemical energy, right? Smell. But all these are, are different frequencies of energy. The same, there's only energy. It's not different kinds of energy. Electricity. So theoretically, you can turn electricity. Well, that's what a diode does. Turns electricity into light. You know, and theoretically, you could turn light into sound and sound into light. And who knows what the hardware looks like to do it? But if you could change that wave to be bigger or smaller or faster or whatever, then it would it would turn into the other thing. So you know, we can transmute energy. We do it all. The, that's how all of our computerized world works, right? You plug something into an electrical outlet and light comes out your screen. So we, we, we see this and we take it for granted, but that's on a very basic level, that's how we live in a magical world. And I think that's the scientific magic, but I think I want a lot of listeners to know that I'm not that scientific reality guy in the sense of like, I like to look at the science and the data, and then I like to go past it in the sense of, either experiencing it, feeling it, or understanding it. So for example, last night I was in a Tai Chi class and we basically learned how to do what Iron Man does, but in real life. There's this thing called your Lao Gong. It's a point, it's an acupressure point in the center of your palm. And then what you do is by stretching your fingers to the different extremes, you access the ability to stretch the palm. And once you do that, which takes anywhere from three months to one year, then you can actually spiral the tissue on your palm in one direction or the other direction. And that tissue on your palm is connected to your different energy centers, which they call the Dantian. And so in a way, you know, that's how the Chinese kind of accents uh, the scientific reality. That's super cool. Yeah, totally super cool, right? Did you see, can, can super your teacher do, did you see your teacher spiral the palm? He hit people with it. So like, I just want to see that, what the hand looks like. It. Well, he put other people's finger in the center of his palm, uh -huh. and then he spiraled the tissue and so that eventually you're, you start to spiral. Oh, cool. And so it's interesting because to me that's magical, but it's this innate human potential that somewhere along the way we forgot. Sure. And I think there's these different access points to these different realms. And so I guess for me, that's what I find to be magical, is like how do we discover these human potentials or these gifts that we think we didn't have, but somehow are constantly trying to reveal themselves in our daily action. Well, and that's, know? you know, that doesn't go far off what you were talking about or what we were talking about with Haiti. Like that that capability to, to be, you know, this is one thing that, that struck me in studying this stuff when I was in school. Like I found this really old archive footage, just black and white, you know, hand crank camera of Haitian voodoo ceremony. Um, and you see like a lady who's all bent over and like old lady suddenly get, you know, she gets mounted, she gets possessed. And she uh, stands up, and she's you know walking on swords and 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 just physical, and and it's like her her entire everything has changed, and like obviously that capability is latent in at least some maybe not everyone right, but at some some humans, and so it's like, what does it take to flip that switch? And you know then the hacker in me starts thinking about like what other switches are there, and and how much control do you have over flipping them and. Do you have to flip them this way? Can you flip them another way? And what happens if you flip two at the same time? And what if you flip it on and off really fast? And, you know, all these interesting things. And it just gets down to human capabilities. You know, we we know that the ancients could see, like, way, because they drew these really complex diagrams of the universe, and they didn't have telescopes. So they, they could see way further into space. And we, we know that we have these optic capabilities in our brain since we don't need it our brain filters it out, you know. 
it's, it's a lot about overcoming your brain's filtration. We don't need to do that with our hands, so our brain doesn't make those connections to those nerves to be able to make a swirl out of those muscles. But when you start pulling on those fingers and stretching it and those nerves need to be used, then they start making, it starts, you know, directing some traffic that way. Yeah, it was interesting because it's definitely, electricity comes out. A lot of these people don't want to be found. And in the sense of, I think, ev like even the magic stuff, um, or supernatural, whatever you might want to call it. I just do it for health, but also I think more than anything, it made me realize there was other magical things in there. Because for the most part, as a filmmaker, you always have to sacrifice a lot of yourself. And and this last year, I realized the sacrifices you make are, are almost the equivalent of a Sundance done over 10 years. And then eventually you have to ask yourself, is there anything else out there? What's connected to this creativity? Because in this creative momentum, you see things. You might have made something in a film that becomes true in society three years later. The one line that you have now becomes a great one-liner on a comedy show. You know, and I think this happens to everyone who writes, where you, you have this concept. You haven't, you haven't really written it yet, but you have this concept. And then someone tells you about this great thing that just came out that's your concept, you know. And, and I, I've had this thing forever with writing where it's like, people say, how do you come up with this stuff? And ever since I was a kid, I always kind of said, like, I don't really feel like I come up with it. I just, it just shows up. I just write it, you know. It comes in, I open my head up. And to me, writer's block is just when, like, it's it's closed up, you know. I'm not, the, whatever, the receiver's off or not tuned right, you know. And it's just a matter of getting the receiver tuned right. And then as soon as it's flowing, the hard part is not moving my fingers on the keyboard. That's the easy part, you know. And, and that sense of what are you receiving that from. And that's that's an understanding, again, that crosses right back into magic because that's where people will say that's your ancestors and that's your guides and your spirits. And that's that level of, you know, the voice in your head is Socrates' daemon. You know, that this idea of like this other intelligence that that isn't, you know, subject to you but it communicates with you. And you're not necessarily subject to it either, but it, it communicates with a, a perspective that's outside of yours and gives you good ideas that you can't come up with in your perspective. And, and yeah, that's, that's, that's extremely magical, you know. Can you talk about some of the traditions that you have studied or maybe even have witnessed some things where you go, okay, this is where it gets real? This, this is what they write movies about. <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, uh, you know, I've never seen anything as dramatic as Ghostbusters happen. That's, you know, that's, that. it depends, on, I guess, on what kind of movies you're talking about. But, um, you know, the most common thing that you see is that it depends on if you believe, right? If, if someone believes, and they say this in Haiti as well, if you don't believe, then they can't do any, you know, no curse can do anything to you. If you do believe, though, oh boy, can they do some things to you. And, you know, the literature is rich with that, even, you know, in our own country, uh, you know, the hoodoo tradition, the conjure tradition, um, all around the world, we see things that we almost take for granted, you know, like yoga. Yoga is a really rich, magical tradition. Buddhism, all these things are kind of trite and played out now because they're these like soft, like, oh, you just sit there. Oh, the Buddhists are dangerous. People don't realize the Buddhists have some really good programming or like at least enough to basically tap into that world. And really they've quantified a lot of it and they've got ways to talk about it. Uh, absolutely, I mean, Tibetan Buddhism is all about, you know, navigating that realm. Um, and so we see, we see a lot of different especially when we consider really in the context of just like daily life, how much we take for granted, like health and all, all these things, all these manufactured things that we depend on that people simply didn't have. I talk about it with Chinese medicine all the time. Like people say, oh, well, Chinese medicine, that's, that's a little bit hoo-hoo hippie. Like, you know, the Chinese seem to have thrived on it for plenty long before Western medicine shown up. Didn't, didn't, wouldn't you imagine that everyone would have died out uh, if it didn't work? I've definitely seen some stuff like stroke victims that if you do certain acupuncture points and channels and even paralysis victims, I like I get to hear some really interesting stories about Tai Chi, about how people who have Parkinson's, they've worked with our Tai Chi teacher and it's very, very hard. But some of these neurological uh, kind of, I don't know if Parkinson's is a neurological breakdown disorder, but some of these disorders like Parkinson's, he's been able to bring back with just a lot of Tai Chi. And it's just, a you know, we, is it magic? Is it a system you don't know? 
um, or just outside of your realm of understanding. Yeah, I mean, what magic, I think people have the idea that magic is like defying logic or defying what's rational or, or something that works outside the system of how things work, supernatural. And I don't think there's anything supernatural about magic. Magic is natural. Magic is, you may not know how it works, but people didn't know how gravity worked until recently, right? Like people didn't know how so much worked. There's still stuff we don't, we don't know how echoes work apparently. You know, there's there's so much we don't know really how it works, but nonetheless it works. And and I think that, you know, what we can, the fine line if we go back in history between medicine and magic is it, it disappears. And that, that separation between mental health and spiritual health and physical health, that all disappears. That's that's a, a newer paradigm, and that's an institutionalized paradigm, and that's you know has a lot to do with what you can make money on and what you can't. How is yoga like magic? I kind of liked where you were going with that, and I, mean, yoga, I didn't mean to cut you off. Sure, yoga is magic. I mean, yoga is uniting the mind and body. So talking about that mind body paradigm, mind body spirit paradigm, that's that yoga is absolutely making those connections. Um, and there's a rich tradition of you know the Taoist internal magic and and yoga really overlapping and life prolonging life becomes sort of the goal of the magic which we call health um and that becomes the goal of of that work and you know as it gets adapted into religious tradition somewhat finding inner peace and things like that and that i guess the thing is the goal of a magical of a culture the goal of a cultural understanding becomes sort of the goal of the magical system and it develops around that so this has a lot to do with the type of the society too yoga was developed in a very um, structured agricultural society, one of the most developed agricultural societies in the world. So there is this whole idea of like uh, sort of the opposite of individualism, collectivism, um, because we all work the fields together and we all eat the rice together and, you know, that's, and we all have specialized tasks. No, there's no kind of being out there going boldly and making your own way help. And you know, that's not valued in those societies um, versus in hunting societies that is very valued. And so the, the types of magic, hunting charms and things like that that you see in hunting societies are really, really different. Um, and obviously the descendants of those societies just have the descendants of those root magics. And they'll, they'll mix as different influences come in and, and intersperse, but the goal of the magic kind of dictates what it does. Like, magic is just a tool, you know, it's a technique, it's a technology. There's sort of two aspects. Exactly, to it. the technology. That's what, I mean, because people are calling it technology now, right? I, I absolutely, I've, all magic ever is is a technique and a technology. Those are the two aspects. Um, but so it's like, if you're a culture that, that has, you know, nails, then you're probably going to want to invent a hammer. If you're a culture that has screws, you want to invent a screwdriver. So the screwdriver might not be helpful for the guy who has nails. You know, the hammer might not be helpful for the guy who has screws. So it all depends on what you're, what you're trying to accomplish. Um, and that's, that's not arbitrary, it's determined by culture, but it's not unified. One book that I ran across in my research, and this was more for the new script with the talismanic weapon, the shield weapon, <laughs> uh, the non-talismanic weapon. Uh, I bought the Lesser Key of Solomon and I started doing research into that lineage or just up for understanding. Like I needed to understand what the ideas were, and then that brought across the different sigils. Is there any way to talk about that? Sure. I mean, Goetia is that's what that practice is known as is Solomonic ritual magic. To kind of put it in a, you know, in the traditional context, you're you're evoking demons, binding and constraining them, and conjuring with them, entering into agreements with them to perform things for you. To put it into a really rational, skeptical context. You're evoking these different parts of your psyche that you don't usually consciously access and setting up uh, sort of behavior modification loops in them um, and kind of doing a little self-programming. The, the interesting thing is, right, like even if you go to the total yeah. rational level, at some point to explain the possible effects of this stuff and the range of effects of this stuff, there's something that science hasn't, hasn't well explained yet that happens, right? Like. It may just be a trick of psychology that to convince you that this is gonna happen. But at some point you make it happen just by believing it's gonna happen. And you know, it's this has gotten I guess really popularized with like the secret, right? Manifestation and all this stuff. Yeah, which I guess is just another access point to the reality or the technology, but everybody's got different tools. Well, and part of this whole technology, so to go back to science, this is yeah. this goes down to quantum physics, right? Like the basic thing in quantum physics that the first experiment I learned about was Schrodinger's cat, right? So there's a cat in a box, and there's um, 
basically when you shoot a light at them in a tube, it could go one way or the other. There's no way to predict which way it's going to go. And so the experiment proves that. And then, so you imagine the box with the light particle going in. It could go one way or the other. If it goes one way, uh, it releases a poisonous gas that kills the cat. And if it goes the other way, it doesn't do anything. Okay, that's how this is set up. And it's proven that because the waveform of that light doesn't collapse until you see it, until it's observed, that until someone looks in the box, mathematically, the cat is both alive and dead at the same time. The person seeing it collapses the waveform and then determines which way it is. So that process of influencing what is unknown or not yet known by visualizing the outcome or seeing it sort of causes the waveform to collapse as a foregone conclusion. At least that's the best my non-physicist self can explain. <laughs> Even as I think about it, with Tai Chi, what I realized was what they didn't want to tell you is that you were actually taking control of the flow of your fluids, and one of which is your blood, and then how you could feed blood to the pituitary gland. And then as you fed blood to the pituitary gland through the different exercises, you would experience an imbalanced emotional state or a balanced emotional state based off of what was going on. You need to be a clear stream or no, a clear spring that emerges into a clear pond. And that was their way of saying, when you get to this level of training, you have to have the mind gate be clear because you're going to feed more blood through it. But now when you think about what blood is, blood has stuff like iron in it. Could blood have an electromagnetic charge? Definitely. You know, I, and, the, and that's, you know, that's the other key point too, is that it's in yoga and, and in the Taoist internal systems. Yes, it moves the fluid. But the other thing is the focus isn't on moving the fluid. It's almost on manipulating the passageways and the pressure system that moves the fluid. And the electronic charges. Yeah. And it's all to maximize the electronic charge. Well, I'm and like, then go back know. to what we were saying yeah. before about energy in general, how it can change forms, right? Like yeah. light can become sound, can become electricity. So back to that principle, like the human bioelectric field can transmute into whatever it takes. And it's just a matter of figuring out that right chain of things to put it into. Yeah, and then if you could amp up more blood, because then I saw a CAT scan of a normal human brain, and when you looked at it sped up over time, it looked as if the body itself was pumping more fluid into that area, and then you would basically increase your psychic abilities or increase whatever extra human potential there is. And just so everybody listening knows, me and Mitch are definitely holding back from some of our own experiences, just because... You know, when you've been to certain places, you know that Europe exists. <laughs> so, you know. And, and nonetheless, we sound like crazies right now. No, I don't think we do because, you know, this, this last job I worked, I went to this uh, music festival. But when you looked at the music festival's makeup, there were people who were practicing different spiritual traditions from the old European, you know, the old European geomancers which geomancing is basically what Stonehenge is. It's basically creating some type of structure that works with the Earth's naturally occurring electromagnetic energy so that the structure itself takes the extra gravity and these extra forces working on it and then creates kind of this own natural flow around it and, and harmony. And so they were talking about geomancing. And so- Did they call it geomancy or lithomancy? It may, maybe it's lithomancy. Is that technically that's lithomancy? It's probably lithomancy. Geomancy yeah. is divination with dirt. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and then I'm just realizing the whole mancing thing because then there's necromancy, then there's like energy mancing, and, and then, then there's romance. Romancing. I like that one. I like that. It's I was just same. thinking about romance this morning and how it's like when you're in love. And then there's bromance, like what we have here, <laughs> Josh. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Um, yeah, but I went to this place and I could see different people practicing and the way that people actually set up their camps were in magic ritual camps. So one was more of an American Wicca tradition. Mm -hmm. And then that led to people like Starhawk and other writers and authors and creative people. Then other people were just thought leaders. But the people who 
had that level where their spirituality crossed over into energy work or some type of magic, something else was happening with them. And even the camps that I went into, they had put magic sigils in different places. And I didn't notice them until after the fact, but there was definitely a level of protection and awareness with those uh, practices to where if you were unaware of what something meant, it didn't mean that you weren't going to be unaffected by it. it. It meant, yeah, you were ignorant, but guess what? If there was literally a protection circle set up by a, a village, if you were walking into that area, that protection circle worked. It kept you at bay or it calmed you down or it made sure you did not enter. And at that point, I knew something else was happening. And, and I knew the level of magical practice in greater society was growing. And I can only speak from this because I did go to Haiti. I did get a curse. When the lady pulled it out of me, she was like, it was like rocks. People put rocks all in your spine. And, and, and it was growing. And I had to experience, you know, a level of training and awareness to make sure that it wouldn't happen again so that I wasn't either calling out or opening myself up to things that, you know, for the most part, you don't think exists if you come from middle America, if you go to church on Sunday, I think you... Which is funny because like, you they know, use the, the Bible talks too. about, yeah, the Bible talks about all this stuff existing. Yeah. I mean, and I think there's some Catholic technology that's pretty freaking cool. You know, I mean, there is magic in, I think, every major religion. And I think in some way they don't want to talk about the power of prayer because isn't it odd how in most prayers the vowel, which is the higher frequency note, is always. So, like, why do you think you just sung in a higher frequency note for an hour? You feel uplifted. I think a lot of the magical tradition behind sort of the, the mainstream religions is, is really long lost, you know, in the, in the mainstream of those religions. And that's where they're, they're you know, this, every... For every you know Christian, there's there's the spiritual Christians and the Gnostic Christians, and for the Jews, there's the Kabbalists, and for the you know Muslims, there's the Sufis, and every tradition does sort of have its its more esoteric, mystical uh, aspect, and and there's where that's where you see a lot of this stuff preserved, and you know much maligned by the mainstream establishment of those religions uh, because they're sort of you know autonomous, like there's no there's no central control system in them. So much of, you know, the history of Europe is based on the church propagating control by disempowering people. And this understanding is, to the contrary, really, really empowering. But again, look at when Jesus was born, who came to visit him, the three magi. And if you find an old enough version translation, it says the three wizards. Like, that's what those guys are. That's that's from really from you can't get earlier in Christianity than when Jesus is born. <laughs> well, and people don't realize uh, I found a book documenting European 1900s Christmas traditions, mm. and the Yule log was a real Yule log, and they were burning like a sacred fire. This log. Oh, all of Christmas is pagan tradition. The Christmas tree itself is pagan tradition. The mistletoe is from Norse tradition. Yeah, a lot of it is Norse. The slippers, the stockings are from Norse tradition. From Odin's horse. Yeah. A lot of, all, all, but you know, I, I almost don't even think of Christmas or Christmas, that, that aspect of Christmas as truly religious Christian, but Easter, Easter's name comes from Ishtar, you know, like we just had Easter. What does it celebrate? The rebirth of life, you know, the, the, there's no, there's no separating. And then when you go to those ancient religions, they were magical religious, purely everything, every ritual has a magical, well, the basic miracle of Christianity, you go to church, you drink from a cup. And wine turns into blood in your mouth. That's magic. That's magic. Well, and going down this this hole led me to the jinn, which is more of an Islamic Muslim tradition, sure. or more of an Islamic magic tradition. Yeah, it's a it's a North African tradition, and and uh, jinn magic is something that is uh, it's unfortunately very difficult to find very good information in English on. Not surprising, perhaps. Well, even just the concept. I mean, just the way that they talked about it and and the level of respect and reverence and, and how certain surahs were written just to uh, help cast out or help protect one's family. Sure. And Bismillah, Irakman, Ibrahim. Just even just the basic stuff like, wow, you guys are still keeping it real. You know? Yeah, I mean, the jinn, the thing about jinn is they, they make these really, they make agreements and they can last 
intergenerationally. And you see, you, often they'd be bound into jewelry and rings and things like this. And so you get these like heirlooms passed down in families and there's strings attached. And at some point in the past five generations, maybe the strings attached didn't get, you know, at some point it just became an heirloom in a bag of jewelry among other heirlooms. Um, and these gin agreements kind of get passed down between generations, sometimes unwittingly. And I think that even opens it up to the level of uh, generational karma or generational trauma. Because I feel like trauma can be passed in between generations regardless. And, and then and even just the electromagnetics of the previous generation passing it on to the next. Well, so the most interesting thing here is DNA is this weird substance that responds a lot like the way that you know other cultures describe spirit responding in that it's this the seed of a total being you know and in one drop of it has your whole essence in it you know some it's a weird parallel and we know our dna has these epigenetic switches that which is brand new too they're just saying new si relatively yeah, right. new science like when i was leaving school you know a big part of anthropology is the study of humans so it has the cultural aspect but it's also genetics is a big part of it you know and when i was leaving school epigenetics was first getting discussed and these epigenetic switches like they determine everything how you know your your muscle to fat ratio your how your how your immune system responds to things just everything about you um, and they're super variable by your life experience like we all learned in school that there was Darwin and there was Lamarck and Lamarck said that the giraffe saw the tree was high and stretched his neck so he could reach it and it was preserved for later generations and Darwin said oh that's silly that can't be there was a freak long-necked giraffe and he survived better than the short ones and so Darwinian evolution but epigenetics is actually proving Lamarck that we can make sort of these iterative changes Agreed. based on environmental factors um, and that has to do with go back to the filters right it became epigenetically useful to put on all these filters to not have to deal with all these energies and not have to be able to see the planets because you're worried about the you know snake that's by your feet that's going to eat you not the planets up there and we had to make those adjustments but the potential is still there we just got to flip the switches so i think without a doubt what you'd see with the Tai Chi practice, what you're talking about, and what you see with magic, and what you see with intergenerational trauma, and what you see with curses, and what you see with sort of these family habits that get passed down. And it's it's the strangest thing, how like a grandchild who has never met a, a grandparent, and maybe never even met the parents, will have like mm -hmm. literal physical habits, ways of moving their face and their body that are similar to those people that they've never observed. And that's all in that epigenetic code somewhere. And so this is the nuance of the genome. And all this stuff is operating in that realm. That's, that's where all the potential is, you know? You know, everybody wants to get woo-woo with some of the new age stuff and be like, I do yoga, I do Tai Chi. But I think there's a double-edged sword with it. And even in some of the Tai Chi classics, they say, look, once you start, your body is going to start to develop a certain way. And if you stop, it literally says, your body will return to a dried stick. Me meaning... The Tai Chi is trying to get your body to evolve because your bones are living, your soft tissue is living. As you evolve to this other place, if you stop, your body will slowly decay back to this regular, you know, So is that, is that dried stick state the same as, like, me having never done Tai Chi, or is it worse? I think it's worse. It's worse. I think it's worse because if you think about it, it's like training the muscle memory because what they say is uh, someone who does Tai Chi to do massage therapy, they they can do the massage therapy and it can be helpful. But someone who makes the cables bigger, it's for martial arts. And mm -hmm. so they're literally just trying to throw as much energy as they can through a point or draw. And so that level of training, that's why, you know, the martial artists back in the day, day like the old school ones, people always romanticize them and say like they were amazing. We hear the story of Ip Man. Ip Man was amazing because he was, you know, the the police hired him to fight rogue martial arts gangs that were just terrorizing the cities. They were just party because they were like, look. We, no one can stop us. Yeah, because we're so healthy and all these people are so meek. And then we can do weird shit that like, what are you going to do to us? And so they would womanize, they would drink. And then there were the people that literally took the martial arts that way and just made them better bad people. Whereas there's the other people who would even go, you know what? I'm good. I need better oxygen. 
because now that I can taste the oxygen, I know that 20% of it is not what I want. So I'm going to go up by those pine trees and see if I can extend my life. And so I think it's one of those things where, you know, once you realize this world is possible, how far will you go down it? Which I think brings me to another question. Is there a way for people to learn about kind of some of the magic stuff we've talked about in a responsible way or like a way to start down the path? Um, because there are shows like The Magicians on Sci-Fi. And when I watch these shows, the one that I was fa most fascinated with was Diablero on Netflix, which was talking about kind of some of the more supernatural elements happening in Mexico City, which sure. was built on the old Aztec um, you know, capital. And so I think the information is out there, but I think it's enough to get people in trouble in the same way that I went, I did my research, and then I made a film... And I basically, you know, opened myself up to something. And, you know, the film got made. You can watch it. It's called Sweet Mickey for President. If you need to be scientific and empirical, you can see the images. Any image of Haitians running at the camera or looking at me or a camera looking at people eye to eye, that was probably my shot. So, but I guess these films are out there. And I think even Harry Potter for that matter, you know, people know that that world is out there and they're going to start to experiment or learn and how do people learn and you know learn in a way that you I, know makes I, them a good friend i think the the most important part is to really look to understand the metaphysics um you know in terms of just being responsible right like it's really interesting well i i can compare it to something super mundane right like it's something like uh, a sport baseball boxing whatever boxing is really simple punching someone in the face it's you can watch boxing and be like I'm, I'm seeing all the cool stuff they're doing I'm gonna try to copy it and you end up not being a very good boxer if you try to do that but if someone sits you down and says okay this is how you throw a punch and this is why it works because your energy is actually coming from your legs and when you rotate that's putting torsion onto it and that's increasing your energy and by hitting with this part you're concentrating the the, the energy to one point you know and by hitting you know a specific part where you're not spreading it out and when you understand that and the physics behind it then it becomes a lot easier to do what has to be done and so it's the same thing it's about understanding the principles people want to just see what's going on and jump right into it and I think there's a lot that's going on. There's a lot that the practitioner is not even aware of. An example I give is like, especially if you're going to some cross-cultural tradition, so much is like unspoken cultural context. We're just with any technology, right? Let's say you go to uh, you know, some indigenous people in the Amazon who've never driven a car before, and you give them a car. Okay, you know for sure, you know, I know, even people in Europe know the gas is on the right, the brakes on the left. You push the button in the hand brake to to move it. You turn the wheel to steer. You push the middle of the wheel. It's going to make a sound. We take that for granted. That doesn't need to be explained. We grow up as kids seeing our parents doing that. You know, we already understand it before we start driving. But if you give it to someone who has no cultural context for it, especially if you don't even tell them what it does, it's going to take a while for them to figure out. Like, okay, here's a car. Here's a key. Get drive. You know, so it's it's just get, getting all that context, all the stuff that we take for granted, and that's the metaphysics. And there's there's you know great the great classic books out there um, that are helpful are the Golden Bough by Fraser covers a lot of the principles. Um, the Doctrine and Ritual of High Magic by Levy is you know a, a standard classic that I recommend. I think you know most people working off those two, and then you can get into the Secret Teachings of All Ages by Manly P. Hall. And that gets the philosophic aspect. And then you've sort of gotten, you know, the, the metaphoric aspect, the philosophical aspect, and the, the sort of physic metaphysical aspect. And, and with that foundation, you can really start to look at some of this stuff and, and apply some understanding to it rather than just say, oh, that's neat. Or I, I want some, I want money, so I'm going to Google money spell and do whatever the Internet says. You find yourself in this difficult place like we were saying in Haiti, like where if you believe it's real, it's real. If you don't, it's not. You find yourself in this difficult place where you're not sure it's real, but you want it to be real. But if it's real, you should definitely do it right. But if it's not real, who cares? But if it's not real, is it worth doing? And is it going to work? And, you know, that that is the first hurdle to overcome 
for people kind of undertaking a magical practice because that just seeds doubt and doubt doubt grounds out that energy every time right because it's so based on knowing as an absolute fact the outcome that it collapses the waveform that that there's no other choice you've already seen what the outcome is yeah and i think that's good for anybody writing about magic there are three books that now screenplay writers who are writing on the magicians who are writing these magic series um we hope you do it responsibly you can research it and set up the worlds so that the people who watch your shows can then kind of go on and learn or even play in these worlds or just understand that these worlds are already here and it's just an innate human potential that's probably already going on and has been going on since the beginning of our lives this innate human potential for us to engage uh in this i I call it the electromagnetic human reality or a psychic space interdimensional reality what would you call it? Well, you know, when you're talking about magic magic, you know, affecting an outcome outside of yourself, when you're affecting an outcome outside of yourself, it's a lot like writing, right? You're creating a reality and you're seeing it through. And that's all it is. And, and just like good writing, you know, that's what makes David Mamet great is that he sees that whole world in every detail. You know, he, 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 he sees that scene. And that's why he can get that conversational banter just right. That's why he can just, everything's perfect. Everything's yeah. so spot on in his writing because that is real. He took something from his imagination and imagined it completely real. And then he was able to actualize it in film, you know, and convey it. And, and that's, it's the same thing, you know, it's working with the creative potential. I really like how you said that. Thanks, man. I thought it would be relevant to the podcast and its topic. And, you know, the David Mamet tie-in. Yeah, totally, totally. For all the writers who need to go re read magic books now. <laughs> um, yeah, because really, if you're going to do a show, you might as well write it like Mamet. I would always use Mamet. He had a lot of good sayings to keep people writing forward and, like, flushing out the whole story. So I would read Mamet in grad school, and then he, he was like, look, like, the one that always pops out is, like, it's about what happens next. And then so I would always use that when I was stuck. Not all the time, because sometimes then you can just make too many things, but then also when I would get stuck. So I do appreciate that. My favorite grad school quote was always uh, in terms of writing, uh, in terms of writing out a plot, you know, was uh, show up late, leave early. On that note, I'll catch you next time. <laughs> Thank you, Mitch, for stopping by. And we really appreciate all of your knowledge and sharing with us. My hope is to get Mitch back on the podcast and be a reoccurring guest to help us all learn how to make our lives magical. Thanks, Josh.